Thanks, Lori. Can you hear me? You guys all look fabulous. Decked out in your Christmas wear. I decided to wear a suit and tie just to mess with everybody. <coughs> so, yeah. yeah, you can pretend it's sincere if you want. Okay, um, so I'm getting ready to come to Christmas service, and my kids all have to take baths and whatever. And so Jude goes up and takes his bath and gets ready in Lexington getting ready for people to come over. And he comes down, and he's got, his, he's got these nice pants on and this really nice sweater on. And it's, it's really dark blue with bright white skull and crossbones on it. <laughs> and I'm like, buddy, it looks like you're preparing to celebrate the birth of Captain Morgan. <laughs> you know, you might want to think about cha changing. Can I take a picture of you, right? It's, uh, and he said, I, he asked me not to show the picture, so Twitter account NG Gibson. And um, <laughs> so he goes back up and he, and he, he comes back down and, I, and he's, he's changed his shirt. I said, you know, you could have worn that if you wanted to. He said, well, you know, I thought I could because, you know, Jesus died on the crossbones, but I don't, I don't know why I couldn't. So apparently he was a lot more theological about it than I thought. Good for him. <clears throat> you know, um, I, I'm the second most cynical Christian I know to Tony Dolliger, and um, he's the guitar player if you don't come regularly. That's the joke. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, every time I come to Christmas here, you know, for, for most people, it's like, it's Christmas, we get some time off from work, the kids are home from school, God bless them. Um, and, you know, and I try to be really, you know, really into Christmas, but, you know, for pastors and us, we're, it's just, this is like tax season for us, you know? It's like, we've got to be at our best and work harder and, you know? And so we end up in this zone, like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this, right? And one of the things that, reason that's important is because there's a lot of things that happen at Christmas that I like, but that can't, legitimize and can't motivate what Christmas is supposed to be about. And the reason why you can—it's important to talk about that is because what is accentuated at Christmas, in terms of what we say Christmas is about, is precisely what Christianity is about 365 days a year. We just—you know, if you don't do it all year, you just do it at Christmas, right? You know? And, um, and so there's a lot of things that sometimes at church we kind of like attack, but it's not that we don't like it. It's just that it can't legitimate and motivate what Christmas is about all year, right? So take presents, for example. Like, I, listen, I tell people at church, do not in an empty way offer to do something for me, because I just want you to know I have the gift of receiving. I'm the second child and the baby of my family, and I will take you up on it. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> so in fact, when people offer me, offer to do something for me in person, I always say, I'm not going to say yes until you go away and come back to me another time and ask me if I want you, want you to do that for me. Because the people don't realize, they think they can offer you stuff for me, and I'll just say, oh, whatever, right? So this, a couple weeks ago, um, I wanted to make a week that was the most romantic week of my wife's life. And so in one week, she got to go on a five-day trip to Denver to hang out with her younger sister, who's in her 20s. She, I sent her new phone, because her phone was glitching and dying on her, and she was ready for an upgrade. So I bought her new phone without her knowing about it, and I shipped it to her sister's house so that when she got there, she could have it. And then while she was gone, um, I had a gas range installed in her house because she cooks a ton. She's kind of a foodie, and she's wanted a gas range for years. So I'd saved this money all year, had it installed for when she gets back. So she gets home. She walks in the kitchen. She sees the gas range. She goes, shut up! You did not install a new stove for me, right? And I said, well, baby, I, I wanted this to be the most romantic week of your life. I just wanted to give you some gifts. And she said— Nick, I cannot tell you 
how loved I feel for not having to have been around you for the last five days. But also around that time, I got my own mom's Christmas letter in which she talked about celebrating Christmas, one of the first Christmases she's conscious of, which was 1944 in central Italy, just after the German troops had left and the Americans had showed up. And she remembered her parents being able to get this little doll to give her. And she said she was so happy. And she said, every Christmas from then until now, I've grown progressively wealthier, but never happier. Which brings up what philosophers have talked about for generations, which the ancient Greeks called the hedonist dilemma. That is that acquisition and consumption need a catalyst or deprivation to remain fulfilling. Right? If you, if you are always eating delicacies or something like that, there's only, there's only one way to make that taste better, and that's to deprive yourself. Right? Or if it's something that when you receive it, it would normally bring you joy— it, it won't continue just out of consumption. Something else has to catalyze it. Something else has to ground it, legitimize it, or motivate it for it can, to continue to have your effect. And that's one of the reasons why we want to choke our kids on Christmas morning when they get to the third gift and they've already forgotten the first one and they act disappointed and some of them actually complain. When we've given them gifts that we could have totally spent on ourselves, You know, like I count how much you spend on gifts in terms of like filet mignons at the Longhorn, you know? I mean, giving to missions, of course. Um, <laughs> or, you know, for some people, though, the, you know, the thing for mission, the thing for Christmas is, well, that's not, I, I, presents not my big thing. You know, Christmas is about um, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. It's sort of the humanistic, like, this is when we all step up and love one another, right? And it reminds me of um, A Christmas Carol, right? I, I sort of grew up with the 1984 version where um, General Patton played um, Ebenezer Scrooge. And, um, and Alexi, like, saved up some of her money, and she took our whole family to the downtown version of this, and um, we got to see it live. It was really cool. And, you know, on the face of it, it's totally a, you know, 19th century, the world's going to get better if we all love each other, right? I mean, part of the message of A Christmas Carol is that love and compassion are going to beat to death want and ignorance, right? I mean, that's the, that's the theme of, the, of the, the story. But one of the things that people often don't recognize is that it—the the problem is not want and ignorance only in the lost children of industrialization in 1844 that Dickens was so concerned about. Part of the problem of want and ignorance was the want and ignorance that resided in Scrooge. And here's the problem with humanity. Yes, the little children of want and ignorance could be helped if the rest of humanity actually had love and compassion. And what we find out in the first couple of scenes of the play is that love and compassion offered to Ebenezer Scrooge had no effect. So how do you produce love and compassion you, you can't produce love and compassion from love and compassion. Love and compassion themselves need to be grounded, legitimized, and motivated. And if you think about the story of Christmas Carol, how does that happen for Scrooge? What actually persuades him to become happy Scrooge at the end? And it's very simple. Hell and hope. Or to put it in classic Christian gospel terms, law and grace. 
right? It's all about the ghosts. Dickens kind of hides the Christian theology. He puts it beneath and he doesn't use Jesus or something. He's got ghosts of Christmas, whatever. But think about it. There's two ghosts of hell and there's two ghosts of grace. And there is very little of this sort of like modern therapeutic, oh, you're a nice feller poppycock. None of the ghosts are very nice, are they? There's one that comes and he says, look at the chain. This is my hell. I am locked into it. Your chain was at least this long seven years ago. It is a ponderous chain. You have labored on it since. And I've come because there might be hope for you. And then the last ghost, but his message, he doesn't even have to talk, right? His message is, you're going to die pretty soon, and more people are going to go to that little kid, poor kid's funeral than to yours. Right? It's very happy. Love, nothing but love and compassion, right? And then there's grace, right? There's the ghost that says, you've forgotten yourself. You used to care about things, but you were hurt. But he doesn't treat him like a victim. He doesn't say, but so you were hurt, so it's not your fault. No, he says, you were hurt. You became an idiot, and you should think about that. Right? That's the—even the ghost of Christmas present isn't all that nice, is he? But he offers possibility. And even the ghosts that aren't very nice, what do they show them? They show him other people who are happy, who've responded to grace. You see, even love and compassion being driven out of goodwill to help those in ignorance and want doesn't ground itself in itself. It needs a grounding. It needs its own legitimization. And it needs its own motivation, right? Um, The third is this. Um, At this point, you would expect the preacher to go on about keeping Christ in Christmas, right? Yeah? It's like, nobody believes—right? That's where we would normally be at this point in the sermon. Um, and I'm totally—I totally believe that, by the way. Um, I was in, I think, 11 or 12 stores. I heard between three and six songs in each store during the, during the Christmas season so far. I never heard a song in any store refer to Jesus or anything in Christianity other than by saying the word Christmas. There were a lot of songs about loves and breakups and the Jackson 5 and so on, but there was nothing about Christianity in any store. I haven't been to the Hobby Lobby, so— but one of the things that I, I read somewhere is that they did a survey with um, people um, of different ages and asked them, what's your go-to Christmas movie? Right? It's Christmas time. What's your go-to Christmas movie? Right? And um, in the age category of 18 to 42, well, what's, your, what's your go-to Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life. Nativity Story. Elf. Yeah. Christmas vacation, okay. All right, so in um, the age group 18 to 42, the number one Christmas movie is? Anyone want to take a shot? A Christmas Story, right. A Christmas Story. Right? Literally no religious content at all. No reference to Christianity, no reference to God, nothing. A great stripper leg lamp, but no reference to God, Right? And it's not that I don't like the movie. I like the movie. It's funny. I've probably seen it nine times. Some people have taken it a little too far. Okay? But that's a big departure from when I was growing up. When I was a kid and I went to my grandparents' house, sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we always watched It's a Wonderful Life. Right? 
And It's a Wonderful Life is a little bit like a Christmas carol in that it's non-direct. It's this angel, and, you know, there's no Jesus in it. But there's providence, grace, redemption, sin and fall, good and evil. And at the end, when everything comes together, what do they all do? Kind of spontaneously as a town. They sing, Hark of the Herald, Angels Sing. Right? It's a change. But you know what? It's funny because there's even more of a change to it in that um, when we got to December, one of the things I did is I, I went to all the—I I really didn't talk to my I emailed all the worship leaders, and I said, listen, if the, if, the, if the Sunday starts with a D, I want most of the music to be Christmas carols. Okay? And people in the church, and some of the people on staff came to me, and they were like, Nick, honestly, do we have—I mean, Christmas, do we have to sing this many Christmas carols? And I was like, it's, it's a Christian holiday, you know? And they were like, yeah, but— you know, we're not really singing to God. We're just singing about God. It's not really worship, is it? And, I, and I, you understand where that's coming from? Like, people have, feel like they have a relationship with God. God's really there. So it makes sense to sing first person, second person, right? And a lot of the Christmas, car- Christmas carols are declaratory, right? They're singing about what happened. So I understand that objection, right? That makes sense. But at the same time, what it also forgets, it, it, what it shows is sometimes we don't really understand what stories are, how they affect us, the different kinds of stories that there are, and why it's important that some stories are told and retold and retold and retold and retold and retold, and in retelling some of them, it is worship. There's two, there's two kinds of stories, at least. I mean, obviously there's more, but for our purposes and for silly Christmas movies, there's at least two, right? There's one kind that is designed to make you identify with the particularities of your own experience. It's a, it's a story that's a mirror. So you're like, oh yeah, I, mean, I remember my, my mouth got washed out with soap, or I wanted a BB gun, and they said, you, you shoot your eye out, or somebody sent me some terrible—some relative sent me some terrible outfit in the mail. I remember that, right? I remember my dad having something in the house that my, what, that my mom hated, but he, that was the one thing he protected, and it was like the fountain of his manhood. Like, I, I connect with that, right? And that's what the—right? That's what the Christmas story movie—Christmas uh, is all about, Right? But there's other stories that they don't function like mirrors. They function kind of like binoculars, right? They point to the noble possibilities of our humanity. They say, yeah, yeah, you identify with this, but you were meant to be this. These are your possibilities, oh human. They could be the possibilities of tragedy or of comedy, of self-destruction or redemption. They could be either one, and you could—you're going to live into one of those narratives, and which are you going to be? And so, when, you know, when you, when you see the, the movie A Christmas Story, it's reflective, right? It's a mirror. It's ha-ha-ha. I've had that experience. <coughs> but I'm not really a crier, right? I've been here three years. You never see me tear up, right? I cried. I teared up six times watching the show Christmas Carol, right? It's like I was malfunctioning. But you know why? Because A Christmas Carol is a binocular story. You watch— the, the story unfolds, and you realize that you are Ebenezer Scrooge. That's you, and you could be either one, and you could go either way, and you—he's a caricature of you. You would never think of yourself as that bad, but his woundedness that creates his sternness, his lack of compassion for others, his disinterest in— even the families of the people he's close to out of real compassion and love. All these things are really true of us. And when people do things in that story that other people just don't normally do, it's not humanity like you normally see it. It's humanity like it should be. That's what hits me. 
because I'm not looking in a mirror and laughing. I'm looking through binoculars, and I'm seeing what I was meant to be. I'm seeing the tragedy that I can be, and I see the possibility that I could be, and that story ennobles me. There are some stories that are not meant to ennoble us. They're meant to entertain us, and there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. Just having fun is fine, but there are some stories, and in some ways these kinds of stories are more important to us. They're meant to do something to us. It'd be a great exercise sometimes. Just sit down and write down your seven favorite movies, your seven favorite books, or whatever, and then go through and, and check off which, which of the two kinds of stories they are. And see which one the majority is of your loves. Do you like mirrors better or binoculars better? Right? And if that's true, and I think it's plainly true about art, what that also means is that as Christians, or people considering what it means to be a Christian, there is one story that not only is, in terms of its artistic beauty, the most possibly ennobling story of all humanity. It's also the story that is true philosophically. That is, what it teaches is truth, and it has historical reliability. It's a story that actually happened, that is really true in what it teaches in terms of its content, and it's actually so morally beautiful that it can ennoble us on every level. That is, it has the capacity to ground, legitimize, and motivate everything we already love about Christmas. When we recognize how little in the gospel, how little we deserve, and how generous God was with his enemies, every gift we give and receive is like a rehearsal of the gospel. It is an un—I mean, think about it. What if your kids really believed what you gave them was completely unmerited? They really had no cause to believe that they should receive it. They had no hope for it. And then here it is, out of sheer grace and compassion and a desire to freely give— that came from your heart as a parent. Their attitude would be totally different, right? Our attitudes would be totally different about everything we received. And once you recognize that God in Christ was maximally generous with his enemies, that that was the kind of goodwill he had towards men, and when that story begins to ennoble you, that you want to be like that Savior, do you think you'll be short on compassion and goodwill towards men? No, you'll have as much compassion and goodwill towards men and women as that story has effect on you right? And it will create the best kind of religiosity, right? If you say you do something religiously, and you mean that in a good sense, what do you mean? Right? You mean you do it extremely regularly. Why? Because the the utility of doing it regularly you know is for your benefit. And almost all of us can recognize this in terms of our physical bodies, right? How often should you go to the gym? Well, Two, three, four times a week, probably, if you really want to get from here to there, right? You know that's necessary because we've all bought into the idea that biologically our bodies need physical repetition, right? But here's the thing. For some reason, we don't believe that about our psychologies and our souls. But we're wrong about that. Most human beings aren't formed immediately when they say, oh, I'm going to believe that thing. You're formed by the community that you're part of and more particularly by the people you eat with. We're formed in character and in poise, and we're ennobled over time with others in whom we share a similar story that we continue to retell, especially if it's morally beautiful 
actually true and historically reliable. Now, I'm going to preach a whole sermon on this on Sunday. But I just want to read one passage, and this is the 700-year prequel. So 700 years before Jesus, this is Isaiah chapter 42. God said this about the Savior he was going to send. This is the main character of the story. This is God speaking. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breaths to its people and life to those who walk on it. Now he's speaking to this, his servant, the Messiah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. You see, the, the character of that story is one who has two characteristics that we never find together. One is the absolute power of the divine king. He will bring justice to all. He will never falter. He will never fail in absolute, complete faithfulness. He will bring the true law. It says all the nation, all the islands, that means the furthest distant nations, will hope in his law. And God says, I will make you a covenant to the people and to the Gentiles, that is, all nations. So to all people, this person will in himself be the kingly agreement between God and human beings. He will be the absolute king. And then it says this. A bruised reed he won't break, and a smoldering wick he won't blow out. I was at um, Christmas caroling with my daughter at um, one of the retirement homes here in town, and outside of the parking lot was the, remember we had that little ice storm? And all these reeds had that ice on them, and they were bent, and they were, they were, they were, they were bent over like this. And just a little bit of ice was all it took. And what this passage says is that king that is that unflaggingly right, true, just, and powerful is also the sort of person who won't—he won't even break a brittle twig. And he won't blow out a little—just a little flame on a candle that's all used up. And all there is is a tiny little piece of flax left— and he's not even so strong against the person that he blows them out. That, that verse is not about candles and it's not about twigs. That verse is about you. That the person at the center of the most ennobling story that must be retold and retold, that motivates and legitimates everything we believe about Christmas and breathes life into all of it, not just at this time of year, but all through the year, is the one God spoke about 700 years before Jesus ever arrived. 
and said that the absolute sovereign just king would be so humble that he wouldn't call out in arrogance in the street. He would be quiet, and he would be so gentle that a bent twiggy wouldn't break, and a smoldering wick he wouldn't burn out, blow out. And when you connect with that story, every gift you give or receive will mean more than the one before it. That every moment where you realize that the world is in pain from want and ignorance and that you should be part of that, you will find motivation not in want, not in compassion and peace itself, but the compassion and peace that comes from a deeper, greater experience of law and grace that you've had with someone else. And when it comes to what we must repeat in the stories we must retell, you will know why we tell this story again and again and again and again. And why on Christmas we tell the first half, and on Easter we tell the second half. Because it is the most ennobling and empowering story to everything that our lives are made up of. And the so what is, so you've got to believe the story. You've got to believe it more. You've got to let it come in deeper. And you can start right now. Father, um, <clears throat> we thank you that we have a story to retell and retell and retell. We pray that you would help it affect us. We pray that it would transform, that it would, it would ground and legitimize and motivate all of the things we love about Christmas. We pray that it would make us people that are fired and fueled by the real meaning of your story, ennobled, in a way that will make us humble and courageous, not self-righteous and shallow. We pray that you'd build us into a community that so retell your story every week that we would become the kind of people who gladly follow the king that was born on the first Christmas. We pray in his name. Amen.